0: Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Posh Virtual Receptionists and Axiom.
1: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Julianne Hill. I'm a legal affairs writer at the ABA Journal. Today, I'm joined by Ann Bremner. She's an attorney in Seattle and a television legal analyst. We'll be talking about her new book, Justice in the Age of Judgment, from Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse, and the battle for due process in the digital age. Hi, Anne.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me. It's such an honor.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. So your book goes through a dozen or so cases to ultimately show how the concept of innocent until proven guilty is under fire in high-profile cases. Let's start with Amanda Knox.
0: Well, where do I begin? I mean, hers was the first truly internet, social media, you know, examination of, international criminal trials that we've really seen and what's happened after that of course I've talked about in the book my brother and I have but in Amanda Knox's case she basically was for the tabloids arrested for turning cartwheels at the police station going out for pizza with her boyfriend buying lingerie they said but she just needed underclothes because she didn't have a place to go or stay And that she acted uh, in a way that they thought looked looked guilty. Um, She's a little bit quirky. But those types of observations became huge in the headlines, saying that it was a satanic ritualistic sex slaying, that she was a temptress, um, tempting Raffaele, her co-defendant, into this group sex ritual homicide, that she didn't like her roommate, that she's basically the, it was kind of like the Madonna Poor kind of image of women, and uh, and that American, but she was very pretty, and so that also worked against her in the media. And finally, her social media all came up where she was standing, like with what looked like a submachine gun, or her boyfriend is wrapped up, you know, and then with some kind of mummy tape with a knife. And so a lot of that was played out. And then of course they talked about her sexual history and broadcast that, and even told her that she had HIV/AIDS. So that case um really i think fascinated not just the italians but everybody around the world because of the salacious type of media that was false but was out there
1: what made that case blow up i mean she's an american college student she's living abroad what is it that spoke to people around the world that got them so interested and made this go on its own journey shall we say
0: yeah. And it was quite a journey because it was about a decade and she spent four years in prison in Italy. I, I think that for a lot of people, it's like, how could she be from Seattle and Seattle Prep and be seemingly angelic? There's a book about her called Angel Face, but yet be this vicious murderer. I think that fascinates people. So the media portrayal made people even more interested because how could she have just turned on a dime you know, into this monster? But I also think the American Abroad, some of the really basic things, um, I can't tell you how many parents I heard from saying that's my worst nightmare that I send my child abroad, right, for um, study abroad. And then something like this happens. It was like, you know, that we called it the Manini Express. That was the name of the prosecutor uh, that all of a sudden she was in the vortex and she couldn't get out. But I also think if you look at the Scott Peterson case or other cases we talk about in the book, why did the Scott Peterson case get so much attention? Well. All-American Next Door, she was going to have a baby, it's Christmas. These are basic things to us that we identify with, you know, in other people. And I think Amanda was one of those people too.
1: In the book, you mentioned the, the girl next door, the boy next door story, and how we, and it gave me pause, I will say that, where how we all judge, how would I have missed that? How could I miss this? horrible person next door where they look so sweet and innocent.
0: Right. And that's Scott Peterson's case. You, you know, if I can't identify evil when it lives next door, I can never identify it. And that's something that I think people are really fearful of. You know, when you see a crime committed in the neighbors, how often do they say I saw it coming? That was a horrible person, right? You usually see him saying, I had no idea. You know, I did what a this is shocking. I didn't see it. I didn't see evil next door.
1: So in your book You looked at O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson and Mary Kay Letourneau and the Peterson case. You mentioned there were about a dozen or so. Are there certain elements that make sure, kind of, that these type of cases lend themselves to this type of media circus?
0: I always think they're almost morality plays. Um, Like when you look at any case, like Michael Jackson, for instance, you know that F. Scott Fitzgerald quote. Um, show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy. I mean, that really was Michael Jackson. And, you know, Scott Peterson, would you know evil that lived next door? Amanda Knox, I mean, an innocent, abroad. you know, that whole concept of can that be? And, and then if you look at, you know, uh, other cases, Betty Broderick was a lesser known case, but that whole, you know, hell hath no fury, but yet she's a housewife that put her husband through medical school and law school and raised four kids and had a license plate that said load them up. And he leaves her for a woman that looks exactly like she did at the age she got married. And uh, she just snapped. Um, he took the kids away, took all the money, everything else. And uh, she was the most popular Oprah Winfrey guest, I think, of all time back then. So th- that resonates for a different reason, which is a lot of women can see themselves in that position, especially back when this happened 25 years ago.
1: In the book, you say that Knox is to social media what OJ was to cable television. Has social media changed the story, the, the way that people look for that confirmation bias?
0: Absolutely. We saw it in the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard case. That was a TikTok trial. I mean, he was invincible on TikTok. It, it was unbelievable to see the avalanche of support for him. And of course, all over Instagram and everywhere else, but especially TikTok. I've just finished trying a case. I was defending the sheriff of the second largest county in Washington state where social media had him condemned, guilty. A lot of it was social media and uh, he was acquitted. And, and but the media going into it was was staggering. And it happened throughout the whole trial that all these things were coming out. And this was broadcast live on a live stream like the Depp versus Heard case. So you're having ongoing commentary. So it's different than. OJ, we all kind of watch, but we didn't participate, right? Now we watch and we participate and we condemn or we applaud.
1: That's really, really interesting to me is the engagement and the the feeling that you as the audience are part of the story. Is traditional media still as heavy of an influence? Is Could OJ happen in the same way again?
0: I don't know. When, what do you think? I mean, I think no. I mean, I, I think that it's just so different with, you know, streaming and all the social media and all the different groups and this, the, you know, the cyber sleuths and and everything else. I don't know if you saw the show of the Cecil Hotel, but in remember in that remember all the web sleuths were very busy. And I think it's great that people are engaged in the justice system, but it can have its drawbacks, too, because everyone's a journalist. No one's a journalist. Everyone's involved. But not everybody knows everything unless they're watching every single day and have a little more expertise than just being an armchair quarterback.
1: And as you mentioned over and over again in your book, Confirmation Bias, we're looking mm-hmm. for the things that we already believe in that first impression that people made.
0: Right. And there's a study that there's no citation for, but we hear it often, that 80% of jurors make up their mind in an opening statement, and they never change their mind. They filter all the evidence through opening. And that confirmation bias, I mean, it's human nature. You, you make up your mind. And you're convinced no matter what. And my brother had some studies that he cited in the book uh, people are not going to change their mind.
1: Your brother is a psychiatrist. Let's sorry.
0: yeah, my brother's a psychiatrist. And so, I mean, he cited some studies. There was one at Stanford, which is where I went, and some other studies dealing with that people are not going to change their minds once they've made up their minds. And it, it doesn't matter what evidence that they're confronted with. They're going to stick with that first thought and it's confirmation bias. And that's a huge problem in high-profile criminal trials.
1: So, as we mentioned, Amanda was tried in the Italian court system. And that underscored to me that this is not just an American justice problem. It doesn't matter really where you're being tried. The court of public opinion is now global. And that's that's a different scene than even O.J., where it was a global phenomenon, to be sure, but it was a little more insular, it felt.
0: Right. And I think... Like Amanda's case, you know, everyone felt like they knew her and people had talking about confirmation bias. There were those that were absolutely convinced she was guilty, no matter what they heard, no matter even to this day that she's been exonerated, not just found not guilty, but exonerated in Italy. They still think she's guilty and they still write in the comment sections and they're still all over the Internet. And then those, of course, the bill that she's completely innocent. And then there's people like my mom who think she must have done something wrong to end up, you know, being prosecuted. But, you know, somewhere in between. But people don't change their minds. And and the media against her was was just staggering. And she was in a secret hearing for a year for some time. You know, in Washington, it'd be 72 hour hold if you're arrested before charging. In Italy, it's far much longer. And so and it's a closed hearing. So all kinds of kind of false information was leaking out from that closed hearing. And that's what really made that case stand out in terms of the wrongful media, I think, and and what led to a wrongful conviction in the first trial.
1: This seems like a natural place to take a quick break. So when we return, I'll be asking Ann Bremner how gender plays into the judgment in these high-profile cases. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com.
0: You're no stranger to compromise. You're a lawyer. But getting the legal team you need is a compromise you shouldn't have to make like when you have to invest in hiring a full-time generalist lawyer when you need a highly specialized IP counsel, or when you don't want to bring in your external law firm with their partner-level price tag. Axiom can help you match the right legal resource to the right matter at the right cost for the right duration. No legal leader should compromise their high standards, and with Axiom, you don't have to. Learn more at axiomlaw.com ABA.
1: Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. Anne Bremner, author of Justice in the Age of Judgment, is with us. And in your book, you talked about Amanda Knox's girl next door look and how that made her seem more guilty. Let's let's talk about that and explore what a woman has to deal with in these types of cases.
0: Well, Raffaele her Solicito, her co-defendant, people were not interested in him. I've spent time with him. I gave a speech with him in Prague in the Czech Republic. He's a lovely young man, but The interest was in Amanda Knox, the pretty girl from Seattle and, you know, all the thoughts of, you know, was she interested in sex with these people or she hate her roommate? I mean, just the dissection of her. And finally, I think people can't believe that women commit crimes like that. And so you've got with the whole evil next door, like what I've seen in it is something of what I've seen in her, you know, that I would have known it, that she was, you know, that the prosecutor called her the she devil that was used in closing argument. Uh, about her. Yeah, she-devil. That that she was, you know, evil and incarnate. And, and we talk about in the book a little bit of ritualistic mysticism in, in the Italian, in Italian history that played into this. But the fact that she was female was everything. Because look at her co-defendant. No interest. Little to no interest in the press.
1: Overall, in the book, you show a pattern that women in these high-profile cases tend to get sent to prison. And men often, not always, but often get let go. Why is that? Is it bad moms, the Madonna whore? I don't know.
0: I think that women are so scrutinized in society and uh, objectified in society, but also, I think, in many ways, marginalized by society. Women don't have the power, you know, over the years to defend themselves. Women don't have the same personalities often as men to be uh, a lot more um, affirmative about their innocence. I think women, I always want to say that we're the kinder, gentler gender, but that's true, um, that that you can have women end up in bad circumstances like Amanda did because she wanted to help the police and went to the police station and ended up in prison. She should have just gotten the next plane and gone home. There was nothing to hold her on. But instead, she cooperated. And if you look at a lot of these cases, Mary Kay Turno was my case, um, Betty Broderick, I represented her, um, Rebecca Zahao in Coronado. You know, these, a lot of these women, you know, were, were very attractive, um, were very vulnerable. And I think that society is fascinated with women in crime. If they're in crime, they may not be, like Amanda Knox. But she was portrayed as being uh, a woman, a young woman at the time, 19, in, in crime.
1: And so men have more power. They might have more access to money, which brings in different lawyers and just a different set of rules.
0: Absolutely. and. We all know that if money can't buy you justice, but money can certainly help, you know, in terms of a defense and power and, and all of those things. And I also talked about Frances Farmer, who is from Seattle, West Seattle, where Amanda was from, for that same reason. I mean, she was somebody that ended up in Western State Hospital and they say she had a lobotomy. And Kurt Cobain named his daughter after her, Frances Bean Cobain, and he wrote a song about her. But beautiful woman. Very smart, wrote an essay called God is Dead. She got a lot of negative attention, and she was pretty feisty and ended up in Western State for many, many years out here in Washington.
1: As you were writing the book, and it was focused primarily on Amanda, Mm -hmm. George Floyd was killed and the Black Lives Matter movement grew. What's the connective tissue between these cases that made you include them in the book?
0: I think every single case, there was confirmation bias. But I also think every single case was distorted and warped in the media. And I, I don't care which case it was. I mean, there are more extreme examples than others. For example, Car- um, Rittenhouse, what was in the media was completely in opposite to what the testimony was. And still people would look at that testimony and say, you know, he should have been convicted because of their perception of him going into it. George Floyd and Derek Sh- uh, Chauvin, there that, that, that would, that would never be an acquittal in that case, never, because of that video and and that tells you how important it is pre trial for the court's not to release evidence like that in in my opinion until the trial they also released the settlement remember in minneapolis it was multi-millions during jury selection so i mean there was that was a foregone conclusion in my opinion that that was going to be that the, the verdict that was rendered and then when you look at you know any of the other cases i talked about every single one of them had a trail of media that was either so extreme against the defendant that a jury did the opposite in their verdict, or it was just wrong. And then in many ways, and and then basically you've got to play cleanup hitter as a, as a lawyer. I, I don't fault the media. All of us, we have very little time, right? And that includes people in the media. That's why we form opinions and move on, right? I mean, that's why we, we basically can say, I got it. I saw this headline, I saw this or that, and I understand. But a trial, as you know, is completely different, and the influence from media, social media, um, etc., is, in my opinion, almost insurmountable. And it wasn't the case I just tried, but we won. But I also, during the whole trial, was watching Twitter, watching the media, and communicating with these folks. That's not what was said. That's not what the evidence was. You've got to do it as you go. So the the thread to answer your question is, you know, all of these just have tremendous interest, and I think it's great. You know, I think educating the public with uh, with our cases and our trials is wonderful and people are interested is wonderful. And on these live streams and commenting and everything else. But we've got to understand that a headline here or a column there or just a per block or there's some image, it's just not enough. And it plays over to jurors and ultimately to verdicts.
1: What can lawyers do in these cases? What lessons are there for them, for the prosecutors and the defense on these super high profile cases that are being played out and the narrative kind of spins out of their control? How do they pull it back?
0: I think the most important thing they can do is to harness all of the media and be familiar with everything that's out there. It's funny, back in the day, we used to have clipping services. Now, it's a lot different um, to find everything in the media, but to, to find everything there, and, and then to basically, you've got to start a truth campaign. You, you've got to, they did this in the Duke Lacrosse case, where that anytime someone went on the air and said something condemning the Duke Lacrosse players, those lawyers or their staff would reach out to the commentator and say, that's not right. You know, the whole time. And ultimately, that prosecutor, Mike Nifon, was, of course, prosecuted, convicted, and disbarred. Very extreme, like Menini and, and in Amanda Knox's case, her prosecutor, But I think you have to exactly know what all of it is. And then you need to go into your trial with your things, combating whatever it was. I don't think you need to have your client out there talking, but I think you need to be out there talking um, to level the playing field. It's not unethical to to come out and basically try to level the playing field um, under Shepard versus Maxwell and, and other cases, especially when you're defending. And then through the whole trial, like I said, you've got to keep on engaging with members of the press. People will send you terrible emails. I get terrible things on social media about my client. You know, how do you deal with that? I, I don't engage, you know, if it's something that's just troll-like. I, I just don't think it's worth it. But I think you can really understand the media and harness those sames that you're hearing and, and then combat them. And because you're trying to case two places, you're trying it in public, and you're trying it in a courtroom.
1: Is there a tendency for prosecutors to sometimes get caught up in making a case for the accused for being a bad person and kind of forget about the evidence. Mm -hmm. How and why does that happen?
0: They must learn it in prosecutor school. (laughs) I don't know. I was a prosecutor. I think, yeah, I mean, a bad person, you know, did a bad thing and good people usually don't do bad things. So they there's a, a lot of interest, I think, in prosecutors to, to portray people, you know, as bad people and try and get in as much evidence as they can prior bad acts, prior complaints, you know, anything bad that they did, they'll try, they'll try and get it in. They didn't pay their taxes. I mean, that's a big thing with jurors. If they're dishonest in something and the fraud, et cetera, Michael Jackson, the complaining witness's mom took the fifth on, I think it was like perjury and welfare fraud and something else. as she took the stand. So there you've got a witness, you know, the prosecutor's like, that's the opposite. It's because they called her, but that's an example of where somebody can really get tripped up is on priors. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's what they want to do. Should they do that? No. I mean, unless it's clearly admissible, and, you know, and it's often not. And look at Weinstein and Epstein, you know, when they're trying to say all these other victims or even Cosby, I, I, I don't really agree with that thought of just bringing a parade of, you know, horribles and a parade of other victims if they're not charged counts.
1: And as you mentioned with Rittenhouse, You have to guide the narrative back to what the laws are that are governing that society, whether it's Wisconsin or Italy, or right to get a verdict.
0: Right. He had a right under the law there that he was lawfully in possession of that weapon. And then it was hard to believe, I think, for a lot of people. But if he analyzed each act of violence, each constituted arguably self-defense under the law there, the defense doesn't have a burden on self-defense, the prosecutor does, as you know, to disprove uh, the self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Given those things, jurors followed the law and and found that he wasn't guilty. And I I really think if people read this book, they they take away from it that people after Rittenhouse said he's still guilty, he shouldn't be out, you know, everything else. We really need to pay attention to the courts, what is deduced in the trial, what the law, is and and respect jurors you know for what they do and how they render their verdicts, because you know abraham lincoln says the highest calling of, of citizenship and i think that's true this
1: seems like a good place to take another break when we return i'll be asking Ann bremner about the lessons that being a lawyer offers for aspiring writers
0: the aba journal legal rebels podcast features the men and women in the legal profession who aren't satisfied with good enough These are the people who are changing the way law is practiced and setting the standards that will define the profession in the future. Each episode, we share their story. To hear insights from those with an eye fixed towards tomorrow, follow the Legal Rebels podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. Ann Bremner, author of Justice in the Age of Judgment, is here with us and and tell me about some tips that you got for writing from being a lawyer. How did that help you in crafting a book?
0: I've said my book's like a TikTok book because each one of the cases is pretty short. You know what I mean? But, but Because I think that that's the interest level people have. They read about the case, what was the media, what's the lesson, et cetera. And brevity you know, solo wit. I think that's something I learned from being a lawyer and storytelling. That's what we do, especially in opening statements and trials. And so I think the book, I needed help from my brother, who is a psychiatrist and he was at Yale and then he's now at Emory, but he really helped me put together some of the bigger issues in the case, PTSD, um, the fallacy or the law, memory issues, confirmation bias, all those kinds of things. So from being a lawyer, I think we all know when you need help, you better ask for it. And so I did because I thought it needed to go to the next level.
1: Is writing a book a little bit like building a case?
0: Yeah, definitely. I love trials, you know, and it, it is a lot like that. You know, I'm like, you think about it, you imagine it, you talk to your friends about it. You know, it's almost like music, you know, I, I play classical piano. So it's like the sonata, you know, and you've got different movements and different speeds and moods and then kind of this whole finesse and finale that that makes sense and resonates with people you know it's not just the case it's it's everyone wants to be part of something bigger than themselves and i think trials are about that you know that you rise up to something bigger than yourself and that's kind of the thought behind the book but also the thought behind trials
1: is an opening statement is writing an opening statement like writing the first chapter of a book
0: yeah, I think so. Opening statement, and you know, you know, we say that in trials. We'll say this is like, you know, basically a preview of things to come, or an index in a book, or first chapter in a book where you set it all up so that people are really interested and can follow through from what you said in the opening. Absolutely.
1: And the importance of storytelling is important in both the courtroom and on the page.
0: They're the same. I think they're absolutely the same, and we try to case. Recently, that was uh, the Susan Cox Powell case where she was murdered by her husband. The kids end up with the state mm-hmm. and the kids are killed by the dad because the state doesn't you know, do the right things. And um, the jury returned a verdict of one hundred fifteen million dollars for us. But that case, those jurors felt something bigger than themselves. That's the most extreme example in my life. And it's in the book of just rising up. It was during the pandemic there. The jurors were on hiatus for months and they came back. And heard the rest of the case, and to this day, I hear from them, and they want to help and participate in the system. So that to me is just so satisfying that a jury became so involved in a case, but also a movement.
1: And they're involved in the story. I mean, being a juror is a way Mm -hmm. of being part of the story.
0: That's exactly they're part of the story, and it's a continuing story.
1: So what's next for you? Another book, or do we have do we have another book inside of you? Do we have that to look forward to?
0: Maybe having done this, I'm like, maybe we do want to do it again. I'll see if my brother's willing. But we had, you know, it was so interesting to do. And it's so interesting to spend time with him and to understand what we do for a living, you know, as lawyers. And people say, "Is well, isn't this autobiographical? And I'm like, not really. It's about cases I cover as an analyst nationally. It's about cases I try. And it's also about cases that hold people's interests." This interested me, and it was kind of cathartic to go through all of it and say, "How does this all make sense, right?" And writing a book, as you know, you, you kind of at the end say, "No, it makes sense to me, and I hope it makes sense to others." But maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe I just retire. But I don't think I do <laughs> I said that to a couple of people in my firm the other day, and they went, "You know, like, oh my God, you're not going to retire." So maybe another book, and uh, I, I think. You know, Clarence Darrow said most people only have about five big trials in them, and I think I'm pretty close to done with trying big cases. Uh, maybe one more, but not not beyond that.
1: So, working with your brother was this the first time you two worked together on anything?
0: Mm-hmm. It is the first time we worked together on anything. And he was someone that that discovered one of the first people that discovered memory. Basically, PTSD can come from you know Vietnam. That's you know sexual assault survivors, that it can actually da- damage the brain, you know, physically. And so, so we always said, you know, he was more interested in the brain and all this, you know, scientific stuff. And he's written a bunch of books about the brain. So I never thought, hmm, would Doug write a book with me? And then he said, well, why don't you just tell me, why don't you just tell me about how you got involved in Amanda's case? You know, tell me about how you felt about this case. And then he wrote it. And it was beautiful. He majored in English at UPS um, out here in Washington, and it was his first love. And it was fun for him to write a book, not about the brain or about PTSD, but about, you know, to t- tell these stories. And he um, became very invested. And I, maybe we can do it again, but he's my little brother. You know, we've always been close, and it was really fun to do together.
1: Did you write every day? What was your process?
0: It was sporadic. But at the end, it was uh, fast and furious. When we're like, we're gonna get this done. And my brother's a taskmaster, so he would say, "You gotta get this done." And I'm like, "Okay," you know. So it it started out, you know, kind of sporadic, and it started out as a book about Amanda Knox. And then, as you can see, it became something very different. But the it's like the constant theme, as you can see, was Amanda Knox. We just went through the progression of her case, and then in between those progressive chapters. We had other cases. Because I think that was a good way to carry the reader through a real injustice when we looked at other cases.
1: What do you want readers to walk away from this book?
0: That our system is the best in the world, but that we're up against a real assault, I think, on the presumption of innocence. And I think that we have to understand that that we can't compartmentalize or you know, look at cases the way that we used to because we're bombarded all the time by everyone's opinion we have to look at it like people look at politics we're a divided nation we're a divided era and people hate Trump or people don't like Biden or you know everyone wants to like it's all over except for the shouting everybody wants to have a say and they you know nobody's listening if you're talking you're not listening it's like that in the legal system I, I think Weinstein he's gone I mean there's no way he was gonna get up and fight again. Cosby, he won his appeal. People still have, you know, nothing but disgust for him and disdain. I I think that we need to let the system work, you know? And the fact is, is that it works very well. Scott Peterson, 20 years later, just had an appeal heard, you know, and the people need to respect that. That's why we have the system. We have great judges, we have great jurors, we have great lawyers, and it all fits together and works. And it's not like Amanda Knox, who basically, you know, was the, the she-devil abroad that was never going to be seen as innocent, never. And my my little brother's wife is Italian. My niece was staying with me uh, at the second conviction. You know, they had triple jeopardy. They tried her three times. She was staying with me. And I said, can you believe that, that Amanda Knox got convicted again? And she goes, oh, it's Italy, Anne. That's totally, I totally believe it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's sad. So you don't see that in our system. I think we all feel a certain level of pride in the United States system. And it works beautifully, but it works when it's adduced in court, period. And once that's done and the appeals are exhausted, that's something we have to live. So it's kind of an old-fashioned lesson I want learned. It's a whole different world these days, as you know, with media. And we just have to have these cases tried in the courtroom. And without any evidence being released, that's prejudicial that shouldn't have been released by prosecutors, including, you know, try to make someone look bad.
1: Thanks so much, Anne. I really appreciate your time and giving us some insight.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: My pleasure, too. And thanks so much to our listeners for, for hanging in with us. I'm Julianne Hill from ABA Journal, and I'm filling in for your usual host, Lee Rawls. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you've read a book you'd like us to consider covering on the podcast, you can always reach us at books at abajournal.com. Thanks for listening.